session four of the Victory Series. And this is, uh, the, the title for this series is The Method. So we've been talking a lot about victory, about how our victory is assured, about how God has, uh, um, uh, victory is essential, it's not optional. Um, but I think a lot of what most of us, I mean, if I were you, the, what I would have been thinking for the last month is, yeah, it's all very nice, Father John, but how? So the verse that we've been kind of contemplating for the last month is yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And in the first week, I, the homework was for you to go home and think about what are all of these things. St. Paul says, in nakedness, in peril, in, in persecution, in sword, in famine, in this and that, we are more than conquerors. He states what his list is. And a little, uh, a little bit later in 2 Corinthians, he says, he gives the, the, the list of his credentials. Like if I give my credentials, I would say I went to this high school and then I went to this university and I, and I, I, I did this training and these courses. These are my credentials. St. Paul gives his credentials. I was imprisoned so many times, shipwrecked so many times, beaten with rods so many times, once left in the deep. Like, like we were shipwrecked and they forgot about me. Three days I was in the deep. Left for dead multiple times, right? He gives... So St. Paul is saying, yet in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. St. John Chrysostom has something to say about yet all of these things that we started with, and now we will end with today. So the question really is how? How, how can we be more than conquerors when there's so much evil around us? You don't need like to have a really colorful imagination to imagine evil and bad and terrible things that happen to us personally, that happen in our world, um, and so on. And St. Paul gives us the response a little bit later in Romans. He says to us, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And again, like, okay, so I won't be overcome by evil. I will overcome evil with good. By the way, the same word, the same word that is used for conquer is this same word overcome. You'll notice this word overcome come up a few times. It's the same Greek word which has its root in the word nika, which is like where Nike gets their name and we kind of all discuss that, that like it means victory, right? It means to be victorious over something or over someone. As opposed to the meaning of victory in the Old Testament, which means to withstand. You know, so like, like I have a terrible boss who bullies me and I was able to withstand him. You know, I just, I didn't give in. I held my ground. You know, I went into work every day with a smile and finally he got transferred. He got a promotion to the other side of the country, right? Versus to overcome, to overcome an obstacle. So the meaning in the New Testament is to overcome. And if we have time, we'll talk about the difference between the two. So where are we going to get this good that is good enough to overcome all evil? Well, there's a young rich man who went to Jesus and told him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit the kingdom of God? And uh, Jesus said to him, Who is good but God alone? Who is good but God alone? 
or in another version, no one is good but God alone. So there is no such thing as good. I want to tell you a little secret. When you read the Bible, you'll find that there are multiple layers that you can, you can read. You can read the Bible and find in it comfort for you personally, comfort for your life, like find things in the Bible that are relevant to you in your daily, in your day and in your moment. But those, those verses in the Bible, those passages will have so much more meaning if then you see them in, in the light of how they apply to Christ. So when, when, the young, when Jesus answered the young rich ruler and said, no one is good but God alone, what he was really telling him was, so you called me good, right? So are you saying, no, no one is good but God alone. So are you saying, are you saying that I'm God? Right? We won't find the goodness that can overcome evil except in Jesus. We won't find the wholeness for our issue, our problem, our brokenness, our opposers, our accusers, the questions that, that haunt us, the, the things that seem so real that bring us to our knees and make us cry. We want, won't find wholeness for that except in Jesus. And Jesus doesn't want to just fill, to just fill us somewhat. He doesn't want us to make things okay. I'll tell you something. The other day, a couple of months ago, I was reading a book about forgiveness. And he was talking about how making excuses for the other person, if you're trying to forgive them, is helpful, but is not forgiveness. It's making an excuse. It's different. Making an excuse for someone is saying they did something wrong and maybe they did it because of this. It's trying to empathize a little bit with the person who has offended you, which is a good thing, but it's not actually, it's not actually forgiveness. It will take away a lot of the sting of the offense, but it won't allow you to let go of it completely. Letting go of it, that's forgiveness. And there's a whole a lot that more that can be said about that. But what I mean to say is that sometimes we do something in part. Sometimes we find a little bit of comfort in something, which is good. But it isn't a cure. It's a remedy. It's a beginning. But it isn't the cure. God wants to give us the cure. The whole thing. Not just fill our cup to the top. Fill it to overflowing. Fill it till there's nowhere else for it to go. Don't believe me? In Psalm 23, that's exactly what King David says. You prepare a table for me before my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. He's saying, I'm in a war. And my enemies are all around me. And they want to eat me alive. And you come and you prepare a banquet table for me. And you put a chair for me. All my enemies are all around me like ravenous wolves. And they want to eat me alive. And you prepare a table for me. And then you yourself, God, come and pour wine into my cup. Not just a little bit. Not halfway. The whole way to the top. And it runs over. It says God himself 
wants to come and to serve us in our suffering. In the presence of my enemies. In the presence of my enemies. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. Um, many years ago, I thought to call upon one of my, one of my old childhood friends. So I, I was looking for his number. I couldn't find it. Like his cell phone number. I couldn't find it. Uh, uh, and so I called him at home. Some people, by the way, still have landlines. I know. They still have this a telephone which is connected to the wall. Right? It's very strange. I don't know. Why would anybody connect anything to the wall that they can't disconnect later? I know. It's crazy. So I called his parents like landline. I spoke to his mom. This lovely saintly woman. And, uh, and she, uh, she told me, oh, you didn't hear. I said, no. He's, I, she said, he's serving in Africa. He quit his job. He used to work for, for Bombardier. And he went to go serve in Africa. And he was serving in Central Africa, in, uh, uh, in Congo, like, which was r previously Rwanda, right, right at, like, at the very end of the Civil War. So she gave me his phone number there, but she told me, like, like God be with you, because he, he never, like, he doesn't charge his phone, he doesn't, we never know, like, where is he, what's he's doing, we just pray that he's, like, still alive. He was starting a school there for, uh, in, a, in a town of basically the entire town was orphaned. Like, he was the only adult in the town, right? Um, and so, uh, finally I got through to him. And I was talking to him, and he was asking me how I was doing, how are you doing this? So we got talking, and uh, I asked him, how, 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 how can you serve in, this, in, in those conditions? No electricity, no running water. He takes his phone to the mayor of the next town. In his house, they have electricity. So he plugs it in, he charges it once every few weeks, you know, like, right? Like, really, really crazy. Really, really crazy, this guy. Lovely guy. Anyhow, um, he said to me, look, I'll tell you something. I learned this here in, in, in Congo, and you could probably only learn this in these places. He said... When you feel that there is darkness all around, know for sure that the Savior is coming. Because that's his name, the Savior. Like, his occupation is to save people, right? And he would be unemployed, like, if he didn't do his job. So he does his job, which is to save people. So if you love, do you love it? He's asking me. Do you love it when you see Jesus in your life? When you see his hand in your life? I was like, yeah, I do. I remember it for the rest of my life. He says, isn't it great? Isn't it like an addiction to like, aren't you addicted to the presence of God in your life? I said, yes. He said, so then you should rejoice when you find darkness all around you. Because that means that, that means that the Savior is coming, right? So he said, and he'll come and he'll be your champion from heaven. And he's talking to me from, he's in Rwanda. I'm calling to encourage him. Right? Um, great, great guy. He served there for, I think, eight years or ten years or something. And then finally decided to settle down and, and, and get married and raise a family and stuff like that. But he taught me. He taught me that, that the darkest moment in the night is right before dawn. Is right before dawn. So to be certain, to be confident... That, that victory is coming. But that victory, the greatest confidence to have, to have in that victory is at the moment 
of the deepest, of the deepest darkness. And then St. Paul says this. In Colossians chapter 2, he says, you are complete in him. So I'm going to ask you something. I want you to please bring me an accusation against Jesus. Tell me, what is he not good at? He doesn't cook well. He's, he's a slob. Uh, he's, uh, uh, he's not very punctual, not very considerate of others. Please bring me some accusation against Jesus. What, what can you say? There's nothing. He's, he's perfect. And he wants to confer that perfection to me and to you. And all he's asking for us to do is to be in him. What does that mean? That means for me to look at all of the things in my life which are not a part of Jesus. All of the things that are not a part of Christ. And reject those things. Though it may be it may be a simple decision, oh, okay, I won't do that anymore. Yeah, I won't think that anymore, I won't say that anymore, maybe. Or it may be uh, something that I'm already attached to, addiction of some sort, or, or a habit, or something, or a way of thinking that is really hard for me to shake. That's okay. It all just begins. It all begins with choosing to be in Him. And when I choose to be in Him, He promises he promises that the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. I love this verse. This is from Psalm 138, 137 in the prayer book in the Igbeya, which um, is in the Compline prayer. I think it's there for a reason. It's there because I'm praying, and as I'm praying, and thinking to myself, what did I do today? And all of the smart and not very smart things start to come to my mind. And God is telling me, all those decisions you made today, the good ones, great. The not so good ones, I will perfect that which concerns you. I will complete that which concerns you. But that grace, that free gift from God, the only way for us to receive it is by believing in it. The only way for us to receive it is by believing in it. And to start living like that grace is truly our reality. And I tell you the truth, this is where I fall apart. Like, I'm pretty good so far, touch wood, at remembering that His grace covers my weakness. I'm not so good, but I'm getting better at it, to remember that His grace covers the weakness of others. So anytime I get upset with somebody, or I judge somebody in my mind, or whatever, I almost feel like a little voice tells me, now, John, don't I cover your weakness? I say, yes, Lord. He says, now, John, don't I have enough goodness to cover the weakness of somebody else as well? I say, yes, Lord. And then the obvious question is, so what's your problem? <laughs> right? If I'm, not, if I'm not picking a bone with him, if I'm not upset with him, why are you upset with him? Right? If I'm not upset with her, why are you upset with her? Right? You're not perfect, and I make you perfect. He or she's not perfect. I will make her or him perfect in my time. The mannequin, right? What's your, how is it, how is this your business, right? How is this, how is this your business? But the only way to have access to that, I promise you, I've tried to find every other way. The only way to be, to have access to that is to believe in it, is to believe in it. 
St. John Chrysostom says something so beautiful. I couldn't help, I tried, I've been trying, this, was, this passage was double this long, and I carved it down, and I was try, kept trying to carve it, make it a little shorter to make it easier. But, but it's so beautiful, I couldn't, I couldn't cut things out. He says, for what is, in, what is indeed wonderful is this, not that we are conquerors only, but that we are so by the very, very things meant as plots against us. Do not then be doubtful, if though beaten, we get better, we get the better of our beaters. If driven out, we overcome our persecutors. If dying, we put the living to fight. What he's saying is this, is that God is not going to overcome evil by some other mechanism. He's going to overcome evil through those who are causing the evil to you. Like, sometimes, sometimes, and this is not untrue, but it's not what St. John Chrysostom is saying. Okay, I'll tell you what this is, what, he, what he's not saying. He's not saying, sometimes, you know, like you, um, you had a great opportunity in life, this, that, whatever, and it didn't pan out. And a friend coming to comfort you says, says, don't worry, God has something better in store for you later. So you didn't get what you want, but you're going to get something else later, which is even better. Good, that's good. And that's very true, and that happens a lot, and that's great, and that's fantastic. But that's not what St. John Chrysostom is saying here. Saint John, what St. John Chrysostom is saying here is, can be beautifully exemplified by a, by a beautiful story about Elisha. One of my favorite stories, I've told it many times before. The king of Assyria used to send raiders to go and harass the nations of which he was the ruling superpower. So he used to send raiders to little villages in, 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 in Israel. He'd send them... And Elisha would go tell the king of Israel where the raiders were going to go. And then the king of Israel would send the whole army. So these raiders would go and find a whole army waiting for them. And then they would leave. And then he'd send them again, the king of Assyria. And then the army would be there. So the king of Assyria looked around and he said, Okay, folks, he looked at his noblemen and his viziers. He said, which one of you is the snitch? One of you is leaking, you know, intel to the king of Israel. Who is it? And the, the noble, one of his noblemen says, we're, we're all loyal to you, king. But there is a man of God in Israel named Elisha. And this man tells the king of Israel what you say in your bedroom. Like, it's kind of sneaky, eh? He says, like, it's kind of, you got to read between the lines what he's saying, but it's kind of naughty, you know? He's telling the king of Israel what you've been doing in your bedroom, right? Then he says, get me that man of Israel. Right? So they send the whole army of Assyria to who? Elisha. Elisha had fired his old disciple because he was greedy so, and not honest anyways. Right? So his new disciple is going out to fetch water from the well in the morning. His eyes are half open. And he opens the door and he's stepping out and he looks outside and what does he find? The whole army of the ruling superpower of that time. He runs back in, of course, after he wet his trousers. Right? <laughs> right? He did his... Right? He did it on himself. And then he says, says to Elisha, Elisha, there's an army outside. Elisha goes, he goes outside and he opens the door. He says, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. So God opens the eyes of his disciple to see that the, the, the whole sky is full of angels of fire. God sent to protect Elisha and his disciple. And then he says to God, Lord, 
strike them with blindness. So the entire Assyrian army becomes blind. So Elisha goes up to the commander and he says, how can I help you? And he says, we're looking for the man Elisha. He says, let me lead him to you. So Elisha takes the commander by the hand, of course, to go meet Elisha, which is him. And he takes them into the citadel, into Samaria, like into the capital. And then they lock all, they lock all the gates and then that's it. Like they could, they could slaughter the entire army of the ruling superpower at that moment. So the king of Israel says, shall we strike my father? He says to Elisha, Elisha says, strike? No, of course not. Set a banquet table for them, feed them, and send them home. Says, what? They're the ones harassing us. Feed them and send them home. Open their eyes, O Lord. They open their eyes. They're in the citadel. They're surrounded from every side. They eat their dinner and they go home. The last verse in that chapter, so beautiful, says, And the king of Assyria sent raiders no more again to Israel in his life. God did not find victory for Israel over Assyria by some other means. He overcame them through their persecutors. I, I, I try very hard not to preach about current events, but following what's going on these days and the massacre in Menya, there's been a few uh, people who have said this evil must be eliminated. This evil must be eradicated. There's a, a British uh, radio person who said something like that and then she got fired. And now it's like a big thing. Like, you know, is it right? Is it wrong? Freedom of speech, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, I'm not commenting about that. All I'm commenting on is for a lot of people, there are only two options. To tolerate the, these uh, violent attacks on innocent people, or to commit, do the same, essentially, to the people who are committing them. And there's nothing in between. But who said there's nothing in between? I'll tell you another secret of spiritual life. And we, we all do this, and we hear this all the time at work, at school, everywhere. And we say this, I say this all the time, and it's wrong. It's demonic, actually, to be very frank. All the time, you find yourself sometimes with two options. A bad one, and a worse one. So you hear a little voice in your head, or your boss, or your neighbor, or your friend saying, well, choose the lesser of two evils, right? Or uh, limit your losses, or whatever, right? All different things to say the same thing. A is bad, B is worse, pick A. It's not as bad as B. But who said there's only A and B? The devil, that's his MO. He comes and tells you, you have A, you have B. A is bad, B is worse. Take A. And he's right, he's not lying to you. He's not giving you bad advice. In, in so much as that it's true, A is bad and B is worse. But what he's not telling you is that there is a God who is a creator. And he can create C and D and E and F and every other iteration of a possible solution that you and I haven't thought of. Because he's the unlimited and he is the almighty and he is the creator. It's his job to create stuff. That's what he does, right? Excuse me, Father John, I just want to interrupt you. I just had to go back hard. Yes, absolutely. And that's what St. John Chrysostom is saying here. And that's our answer to be, my answer anyways, to people who say this evil must be eradicated. Maybe God has another way. Maybe God has another way, as he did with Elisha. The God of Elisha is still alive and well. And maybe he is alive for us. So St. John is saying, 
Do not be doubtful. If though beaten, we get better, we get the better of our beaters. If driven out, we overcome our persecutors. If dying, we put the living to fight. For when you take the power and also the love of God into account, there is nothing to prevent these wondrous and strange things from coming to pass. So that one might learn that those who plotted against them had a war not against men, but against the, that invincible might. St. John is saying that, and why? Why does God do this? Why does he choose to become victorious for Elisha, not by some other means, not by creating some alliance between Israel and e Egypt, and now king of Assyria is afraid of them. So, no, by being victorious through the raiders, through the this people who were perpetrating those crimes. Why? Because God wants to prove that when you fight against my children, you're fighting, you're fighting the King of Kings, the Almighty, the Pantocrator. You're fighting. It's an opportunity for him to display his might. Finally, just a couple of more thoughts for you. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 12, it talks about the war between Michael and his angels and Satan and his angels when, when Satan gets cast out of heaven. It says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast out. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to death. Notice that the name given to Satan is the accuser. The accuser. Actually, Satan is not a proper name. It actually means the accuser or the opposer. That's actually what the word Satan in Hebrew means. So whenever you feel accused, whenever you feel, um, whether it's your own thoughts or, or things people are saying or this or that, know that that is not God's MO. That's probably coming from the enemy. How did they overcome? They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. I want to just focus on this last bit. They did not love their lives to death. If I want to be in Christ, if I want to have access to this grace, I'm going to have to let go of some things. I'm going to have to let go of some things. Like, if being in Christ means not doing this, not thinking this way, not talking that way, not whatever, I'm going to have to let go of that. But the question is, do I love that more or not? Now, how about if that thing that I have to let go of is my life? Look at the martyrs. Like, the martyrs, this kills me. The martyrs of the, you know, 4th and 5th centuries would go to the places of martyrdom to be martyred. Like, the purpose for the journey was to go and not come back. Like, they sold everything and they gave everything away. They had nowhere to, like, if God forbid they didn't get martyred, and they came home, they'd have nowhere to go. They sold their home, they sold everything. They'd have nothing to wear, they sold all their clothes, they gave everything away. Right? They were, they were on a one-way trip. They were clearly saying, I don't love my life more than you. 
Sometimes I tell God I love donuts more than you. Right? So it's a spectrum. It's a spectrum. And I'm not going to get to the point of all my life in my confessions, I've told my spiritual father, I want to be a martyr. And all my life in my confessions, my spiritual father told me, when you can give up donuts, maybe you'll be able to give up your life. Right? St. Paul is telling us, he's encouraging us to die to these desires and to embrace being fully in Christ. And he says, for you died and your life is hidden in Christ, in God. Hidden in Christ, in God. That means that if you look for me, all you'll find is Jesus. If you want to assess my performance, the only performance you'll be able to assess is Jesus. Because I am hidden, I'm lost, I'm buried inside Jesus. The only thing which is apparent on the outside is Jesus. Finally, Jesus himself uses the word overcome. The last thing he says to his disciples as a group before the cross, he says to them, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Shall we rise and pray?